welcome to the Southern Roots Podcast, digging beneath the surface to uncover the hidden ideas that form us and the church and our culture. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode 48, Tearing Up My Heart. Points to you if you can name the band. Jessica and I were married in 1995 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was a wonderful few days of celebration with family and friends. During our rehearsal dinner the night before the ceremony, we exchanged gifts with the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and with each other. At one particularly emotional moment of the evening, Jessica tearfully opened up a little jewelry box and handed me a small golden key attached to some ribbon. She told me that it was the key to her heart and she was now giving it to me. I was now entrusted with protecting and securing her heart and This little gold key was a symbol of her love and devotion to me as we began our journey together. It was a beautiful moment and a genuine act of sacrifice and trust on her part. I was very touched. And the following day, we got married. And the day after that, we headed out of town to our honeymoon in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. As far as honeymoons go, it probably wasn't the best experience. Forgotten luggage, some food poisoning, a second-degree sunburn, and even some motion sicknesses probably weren't particularly enjoyable events at the time, but they do make for great stories now. But as we were packing up to leave South Carolina and start the trip home, I realized with a sudden lump in my throat that I was missing something. I couldn't find the small golden key that Jessica had given me just days before. I tore through our hotel room. I took our luggage apart. I ransacked my clothing and toiletries, all to no avail. Within just a week of saying I do, I had successfully lost the key to my wife's heart, the symbol of her love and devotion. Fortunately, Jessica's a forgiving person, and we forged a fantastic marriage, but sometimes our efforts at developing intimate relationships don't really go as planned. Which brings us to the fourth key element of our spiritual formation, intimacy. This entire season is focused on the third primary problem, the formation gap, We've proposed that New Testament discipleship embodies five critical elements, five necessary things in our journey to become more like the person of Jesus. Time, habit, community, intimacy, and instruction. Earlier this season, we explored time as a key element in that formation. We began to introduce the idea of immersive communities of formation, or what we're now referring to as five-element communities. What role does time play? Well, we need time and intentional relationships. We seek to reorient and reprioritize our lives so that we spend purposeful, celebrated time in specific discipling relationships with God and others and ourselves and even his creation. We're also present in time. We're moving towards being present, spiritually attuned, gently pursuing, wisely inviting in our relationships with God and others and ourselves and creation. A disciple minimizes distractions so that we're present in our relationships. And we talked about more dialogue, less monologue. We intentionally cultivate an environment where doubts and questions and concerns and even polite dissent are welcomed and encouraged in our time exploring both of God's books, primarily his first. And we broke down time a bit more related to these four relationships in regard to our time with God, Five-element communities create time and space for so-called spiritual disciplines or habits. 
And God is with us, obviously, in our relationships with him, but he also reveals himself and relates to us through the other three relationships. So in regard to our time with others, some of discipleship is more caught than taught. So we intentionally spend time with other mature disciples and fellow sojourners, people who genuinely desire to think and behave and love like Jesus. And then in regard to time with ourselves, this refers all the way back to season two and the concept of heart view, being courageously curious about why we think and behave and speak and form the relationships we do. And that means we dig into our stories. We invite God and trusted friends into the process of helping us identify how our hearts are showing its true desires and ideas through these eight indicators. So a five-element community focuses on the overall story of the Bible, which is the story of the king and his kingdom. And it focuses on exploring our own stories and how they fit into God's grand narrative. Well, from time, we then explore the use of habits or spiritual disciplines in the life of a disciple. And then we explore them again in light of these four relationships. God still speaks, and disciples in five-element communities practice the habit of listening for his voice. We practice the habit of listening to others' hearts and not just their words. We practice asking why-related questions, inviting others to dig beneath the surface to explore their own hearts for the purposes of healing and redemption and restoration. And disciples practice the habit of listening to our own hearts. We practice heart view. We pay attention to our thoughts and our behaviors, our relationships, our feelings. We pay attention to our words, our health, and our approach and our attitudes about time and money. These outward indicators point us to an inward reality, the ideas and the desires in our inner self or our roots. And lastly, we practice habits related to ruling, stewarding God's earth, which is the very first thing he told us to do. So that was time and then habits, and then we moved on to community, and then we spent quite a bit of time there. We introduced the idea of sitcom communities, where everybody knows your name that human beings long for committed primary communities, but these have been largely discarded in the modern West. Instead, we find ourselves trying to keep any number of disparate communities together, and we can't form the intimate relationships needed for really good spiritual formation. We discuss the West's assumptions about quote-unquote professional Christianity, which tends to create celebrity Christians and the underlying idea that we go to church to be taught rather than to be formed. And we tend not to do our own exploration of the Bible and God's second book of creation because we just assume the professionals will just tell us. That is not the biblical model. We also compared and contrasted five element communities with what most of us experience at church or in our small groups or our Bible studies. We're suggesting that five element communities are somewhat unique in that they exist specifically to solve the current three primary problems. We form these sitcom-type committed communities for the purpose of becoming more like Jesus, knowing his story and our story, in the environment, the ethos of the kingdom. We also talked about a few of the dangers that we expect to find in our communities, including the potential presence of both covert and overt narcissists, understanding they often seek out Christian communities. And that brings us to the fourth element of our communities, intimacy. Now, when I was first trying to articulate the five elements, I wrestled with different words to describe what the Gospels and Acts portray among people in these communities. 
So the word transparency is pretty good. Trust, that's a fantastic description. Vulnerability, that certainly describes Jesus, Peter, Paul, and the women that served with him. Authentic was a potential candidate, but that word seems to have developed some strange overtones these days. And I actually tried to stay away from the word intimacy because it has become so overly sexualized in our modern-day culture. And in fairness, one of the common definitions of intimacy is, in fact, sexual intercourse. But other definitions of intimacy paint a more holistic picture. So here we go. A close, familiar, and usually affectionate or loving personal relationship with another person or group. A close association with or detailed knowledge of or deep understanding of a place, a subject, a period of history. An act or an expression serving as a token of familiarity, affection, or the like. The quality of being comfortable, warm, familiar. Privacy, especially as a suitable to the telling of a secret. Now, considering the extraordinary language and action that God uses to convey his love for people in the Old Testament and how that's carried through in the New Testament in Jesus and the Gospels and the writings of Paul and Peter, I realized I needed the strongest word possible to convey a depth of relationship in these communities. And when we consider that the God of the universe is so intent, so desirous to be with us, he actually lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, well, there is really no more debate. The best word to describe a critical element of formation in community is, in fact, intimacy. A close, familiar, and usually affectionate and loving personal relationship with another person or group, with a detailed knowledge, deep understanding, the quality of being comfortable, warm, familiar. Isn't that what human beings long for in our relationship with God and others? Neuroscientist Kurt Thompson wrote, Our deepest desire and highest hope is that there will be someone looking for us, and that this person will always be there for us and will pursue our hearts with a genuine desire to truly know us. Our greatest need as human beings is to be known and to know that the person who knows us will be there for us. End quote. In other words, our deepest desire is for intimacy, to be known in a safe, secure, trusted relationship. We're now far enough along in our exploration of five-element communities that these elements begin to merge together. It's difficult to talk about intimacy without mentioning time or habits, for instance. Modern evangelicalism is built on and stresses the idea that human beings can have a personal, intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We assume that growing in our relationship with the King of Kings involves time. It's impossible to get to know anyone well, and certainly intimately if we don't spend time with them. And any real relationship must involve various habits. In human relationships, this may be as simple as getting together for coffee once a week, or taking walks together, or working together. Any relationship intended on becoming intimate must involve repeated behaviors. And we grow in our intimacy with God through these habits like prayer and silence and confession. In modern Christianity, we've been very well trained and constantly reminded of our need to grow in our intimacy with God. And we study and practice and honor the relationship of marriage. It is, after all, a living metaphor of Jesus' relationship with the entire community of his apprentices. Not that we always get marriage right, of course, but at least we have abundant teachings and models of how we should develop intimacy in marriage. But when we start talking about intimacy in relationships with ourselves and other humans in community, 
that's when things get a little complicated. In our postmodern churches, we tend to assume that we can have and should develop a relationship with God apart from our relationship with others. After all, the point is to accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. We develop a private prayer life. We have our personal quiet time. We read our Bibles, usually alone. We do our devotionals, generally alone. Many of the spiritual disciplines we've explored are practiced alone. Look, knowledge of self is important. John Calvin wrote, We cannot expect to know God fully if we are not willing to know ourselves, for one depends on the other. Now, to be sure, Calvin wasn't talking about the Myers-Briggs personality test or the Enneagram. Calvin is encouraging us to confront our own hearts so that we find our need for God. Kevin DeYoung further clarifies Calvin's point. He wrote, quote, Know God, know yourself. Know yourself to know your need of God. Know God to know you are not God's. End quote. Still, there's an important principle here. Our relationship with God depends on our relationship with ourselves, on our willingness to uncover and confront our own hearts, our ideas, our desires. Apparently, our ability to deepen our relationship with God is dependent on our ability or willingness to deepen our understanding of ourselves. A short sidebar here. If you Google things like personality tests such as Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or Colby or Strength Finders and read various Christian perspectives, you're probably going to get an eyeful. And I don't mean about the accuracy of the tests. Some Christians hold to the idea that studying and understanding your own personality and talents is tantamount to self-worship or idolatry. I find this type of criticism a bit mystifying. If you walk into an art gallery and find a particular painting captivating, you're probably going to want to study it. You're going to learn about its history and study the style. You may spend hours exploring the colors, the shapes, the sizes. You'll want to understand the story of why and how the artist created the painting in the first place. Well, human beings are the creator's crowning achievement. You are the work of a divine artist. And frankly, you're worth exploring. So to take the time to better understand how your creator wired you or what sort of talents and gifts he's given you and what your passions are is to simply appreciate the wonder and the creativity of your creator and to learn more about his work of art. So providing we don't use these tests as excuses to sin or rationalize some sort of self-worship, and I don't think that's why most people take them, I think they're rather fascinating and should be enjoyed. Surely we can find some better things to argue about. Okay, back to the topic. God desires an intimate, trusted relationship with us, and our ability to grow in that relationship is dependent on a willingness to dig into our own hearts. But here we're primarily talking about intimacy in community. What does it mean to form trusted relationships in which both parties are known, deeply known, in safety and security? We're going to focus on another remark by Kurt Thompson that I've wrestled with for some time. The reason I find this quote so challenging is because he connects some dots that modern Christianity normally doesn't connect. So here's what he wrote. You cannot know God if you do not experience being known by him. And the degree that you are known by him will be reflected in the way in which you are known by other people. In other words, your relationship with God is a direct reflection on the depth of your relationship with others. End quote. He makes two critical points. Number one, 
we know God by experiencing God. And two, how well we know God is a reflection of how well we're known by other people. This is not a typical Christian sentiment. That my experiencing God is a reflection of my being known by other people. And he goes on, perhaps you have not experienced what it means to be truly known. Consequently, you have limited experience in opening yourself up to God in this way. Ouch. Between Calvin and Thompson, we're beginning to get a more unified, more dependent picture of intimacy in relationship. Our connections to God, ourselves, and others do not function in independent, isolated relationships. Instead, they form a type of interconnected relational matrix, and each one has a deep impact on the others. Let me just add that this isn't only true for our current relationships. Our past relationships, our stories, impact our ability or our willingness to be deeply connected to people and to God today. So if we're cold or distant or detached with ourselves, that will be our pattern with others and with God. If we refuse to dig into our own hearts to explore our ideas and desires, we won't explore the hearts of others, and we certainly won't explore the heart of God. But if we do have a deep desire to know others and invite them into vulnerable relationships, chances are we routinely explore our own hearts and are also willingly engaging with God into deeper and deeper places. So next time we run into an avowed atheist, we might ask them how they relate to themselves. We might ask them about their story, about how others have treated them. We might inquire if they've ever been truly, deeply known by someone who's safe, someone who sought their goodness. Many people hate or disavow God, but it has nothing to do with apologetics or theology or even ideology. Now we're beginning to see why intimacy made it into the top five key elements. If every human being comes into the world longing to be known, and the depth of our relationship with God is directly tied to our being known by other people, then being in a community of people who generally desire to know us is vital to our spiritual formation, to our hearts being formed into the likeness of Jesus. Why does modern society struggle so much with this? Why do our Christian communities struggle so much with this? Jeremy Lineman reports, quote, Americans are lonelier than ever. Even though opportunities for social connection have exponentially increased. Even with affordable phone calls and free email, we're talking to each other less. Despite the prevalence of car ownership and the low cost of cross-country air travel, we're spending less time with our families. After decades of bowling leagues, Americans began bowling alone. Today, in the age of social media, we're not even bowling, we're scrolling alone. He goes on, the former Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, was the first to call loneliness an epidemic. Murthy has shown that loneliness causes an insidious type of stress that leads to chronic inflammation and an increased risk of heart disease, arthritis, diabetes. Loneliness has the same effect on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. End quote. Author Rosaria Butterfield actually thinks the modern church breeds loneliness particularly if you're single. Butterfield believes that we have declared independence from each other in our culture and sadly in our churches. Once upon a time, the church was of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
shared time, shared food, shared possessions, shared identity. They were the early church, a family bound together by the blood of Jesus. Many of our churches today have left behind that picture of the family of God, though. The contemporary Western church's absolutely low or non-existent culture of the family of God has fostered an unparalleled depth of loneliness, with single women in particular buried at the bottom. It's one thing if you're married and have a family, at least we have some sort of a home community, but singles are often unconsciously treated as outcasts or projects to be redeemed. They don't get married off, something must be wrong with them. Her solution? A radical recapturing of New Testament community. But not just with people who are in our same stage of life. Quote, Rosaria strongly warns against homogenous small groups, particularly those that separate by age or sex, season of life, or common sin struggles. What single women need are not more single women. What young families need are not more young families. Why? Rosaria continues, small groups that are organized by sociological category really weaken relationships across differences in a church, and it weakens our ability to really serve one another, end quote. A major challenge with a loneliness epidemic is that it becomes so normative, so accepted as an unconscious idea in our culture, many of us who struggle with loneliness don't even know we're lonely. And I'm not just talking about people who willingly isolate themselves We can be just as lonely sitting in a church, sitting in a small group, or sitting in Sunday school. It isn't the fact that we're present or not present with other people. It's the degree to which we know others and are willing to be known. So why might we resist genuine intimacy in our relationships with others and God? Well, because it's inherently risky. Back to Kurt Thompson, he writes, quote, If you allow yourself to be known by God, you invite a different and, frankly, more terrifying experience. You are now in a position of vulnerability. If you permit others to know you, they can make their own assessment of your worth. They can react to you. You grant them the option to love you or to reject you. In essence, you must, you must trust another with yourself, end quote. Well, now we're getting to the soil and the roots. Intimacy requires risk. To open ourselves up to God and others means we lay ourselves bare. In a sense, it means we voluntarily become emotionally, spiritually, intellectually naked. And as our first father and mother so powerfully experienced, our reaction to shame is not to stay naked. It's to grab some fig leaves. To invite intimacy means that others will see our warts, our pride, our prejudices, our mistakes... Let's just face it, modern Christianity in the West places such pressure on our performance, on our obedience, on doing and saying the things we're supposed to do. The last thing we want is for others to know we may not be performing or obeying the way that we should. Have you ever met someone at church and thought, this is someone who has it all together? Only to discover that as you get to know them over time, you begin to see patterns and cracks and behaviors that strongly suggest not all is well in Camelot. Not that they're aware or confessional, they're attempting to maintain a certain image, but that you just notice certain things as the normal honeymoon stage of any relationship wears off. Many Christians are extraordinarily image conscious. We have a deep need to be seen a certain way in order to conform to what we believe the image of a good Christian should look like. 
Ironically, we actually diminish and minimize what it means to be human in relationships when we fight so hard to maintain this Christian image. We're far better defined by our shared struggles than whether we raise our hands during a worship song or can quote Bible verses. Well, let's face it, not only do we not want to be truly known, we also just don't want to get hurt. We don't want our hearts broken. We don't want to lose face or our reputation or someone's approval. Our hearts make a calculation. It's actually better to have never loved at all than to have loved and lost. Yet this is the way of Christ, and it's the way of his apprentices. We do lay ourselves bare. We do take the risk of divulging ourselves, of sharing ourselves, of giving ourselves away in what we hope are healthy and trusted relationships. To not take that risk is to deny our humanity, our deepest desires to know and be known. Now, intimacy is not something just to be given away to everyone. That's what prostitutes do, and it slowly fractures and kills their souls. No, we cultivate intimacy through consistent, trusted interactions with other people. We follow Jesus, who certainly didn't give himself to everyone. He didn't trust everyone. He didn't share his heart with everyone. And so nor should we. He was intimate and vulnerable with his community, his inner circle, his three closest friends and nine others, and the women who ministered with him, Lazarus, Mary, Martha. And he did give his heart to some who left him, abandoned him, and one in particular who betrayed him. Such is the way of offering our hearts to others. Sometimes they get broken. We'll close with a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis that may be surprising to some of our evangelical ears, Lewis is making the point that God in his mercy and creativity draws us to him in all sorts of intimate, intentional ways. And perhaps we are most intimate with God when we are most honest with him, even if our honesty doesn't fit the refined Christian image. Here's what he wrote, quote, God works on us in all sorts of ways, not only through what we think or our religious life. He works through nature. He works through our own bodies and through books, sometimes through experiences which seem at the time anti-Christian. When a young man who has been going to church in a routine way honestly realizes that he does not believe in Christianity and stops going, provided he does it for honesty's sake and not just to annoy his parents, the spirit of Christ is probably nearer to him then than it ever was before. But above all, God works on us through each other, through our relationships, our friends, our family, our communities, through vulnerable, transparent, and at times really frustrating relationships. Thanks for listening. If you prefer to read, you can find most of the episodes on the blog link on the website. So for more information, check out SoilandRoots.org. As always, you can email questions and comments in at fish at SoilandRoots.org. And we'll see you next time in the greenhouse. <laughs>